This was the scene in Cairo's Tahir Square on the 25th of January, 2011. Tens of thousands of people came out to demand an end to the rule of Hosni Mubarak. We're waiting for some kind of revolution or something like that. Where we're just, we have to move. We're not going to stand still. They weren't called to the streets of Cairo and other cities around Egypt by a political party or a leafleting campaign. Instead, their organizing platform was a Facebook page. It was called We Are All Khaled Said, in honor of a young man who was tortured to death by Egyptian police. That page became a main organizing vehicle, perhaps the main organizing vehicle, for the activists who would go on to be successful in overthrowing the Mubarak regime. In fact, I don't think it's any exaggeration to call this the moment when the world woke up to the true political power of social media. This is BBC Trending, the podcast that takes an investigative look at social media and online culture. I'm Mike Wendling. That demonstration scared the Egyptian authorities because it seemed like it came out of nowhere. It looked almost leaderless, a formless mass of people demanding change. But there were people who were coordinating the protests, and today we'll hear at length from one of them. Wail Gonim set up the We Are All Khaled Said Facebook page. It was a triumph for social media politics. But if the story of Tahir Square is familiar to you, you probably also know what happened next. That initial hope in the days of the revolution faded fast. The Muslim Brotherhood candidate Mohamed Morsi was elected president and was then overthrown by the army. Just a few days ago, he died in court while on trial. And over the past several years, there's been a wave of terror attacks in Egypt, a shaky security situation, a faltering economy, increasing political repression. The revolution did not go according to plan. I chatted with Wail Gonim about Egypt, but I also heard about what he did after the revolution and his thoughts on technology today. At the time he set up his Facebook page, he was working as a regional head of marketing for Google, so he was already firmly embedded in the tech world. He later founded a company called Parlio, which was sold to the social network Quora. I wondered if events in Egypt and elsewhere had changed his perspective, and I found someone both skeptical but committed to change. A few months ago, I visited him in one of his favorite cafes in San Francisco, and we spent a while talking about technology and revolution. The amount of power a platform like Facebook or YouTube or Twitter have over the world is humongous. And with great power comes great responsibility. It's not that easy to align the societal interests with the interests of the companies. And when I say the interests of the companies, I'm mostly talking about the short-term interests. Uh, You know, after all, these are listed companies. They have quarterly results uh, that they need to report to. And if they're not, they're they're here to impress their shareholders, (laughs) not anyone else. Um, And uh, they have to manage their public image for sure, uh, but at the same time, they have they have to deliver on these quarterly uh, uh, basis. So, this lack of misalignment between uh, the in short-term interests of these companies and the long-term interests of the society is a real challenge. It is uh, contributing to uh, the problems we're experiencing today in terms of, uh, for example, like populism, uh, the algorithms of social media platforms uh, that are 
driven by artificial intelligence, optimized for engagement, which means that if you write a post and that gets more engagement after 100 people see it, than another post uh, that someone else writes, that post will get more distribution. So it's kind of like an editor is sitting on top of the content deciding based on popularity. And it's not just popularity, uh, not to like oversimplify models. Uh, definitely there are other signals, but it's mainly rewards people for being able to engage others. Um, and we all know that uh, when our emotions are triggered, uh, we're more likely to engage. And uh, we also know uh, that negative emotions are far more... Uh, contagious in terms of like engagement than positive emotions because evolutionarily, you know, you want to escape the lion, um, but you know, feeling happy and mesmerizing is not a priority when there is a lion in town. Um, so when you build algorithms around engagement, what happens is that those emotional exploiters, the people who know how to get others fearful uh, or angry or ashamed or disgusted or, or happy or excited uh, get to try and, um, and get the attention. Uh, and attention is a scarce resource. And if it was in an artistic form, like if that's for watching a nice movie um, or a nice show, that's fine because we all know this is fiction. But if it's for politics, uh, politics cannot be an entertainment business. And politics today is an entertainment business. That's why most of the heads of states are uh, becoming more and more of entertainers rather than bureaucratic um, experts. To vastly oversimplify it, emotions play well on social media. To base our decisions and our society on these emotional feedback loops is not at all a good idea. Facebook in the UK, in the US, and Brazil has started databases of political advertisements and has started to give a bit more information about who's behind those, to take just one sort of random example. What areas do you think should be more transparent when it comes to social media and tech companies? Uh, that's a great question. One of, one of the challenges we have today is that your social media feed is different than mine, right? Because um, you engage with certain type of content um, and it's not necessarily the same type of content that I engage with. Um, that personalization offered both of us such a great experience because you get to see what you're interested in most of the time. So the signal to noise ratio is much better. That's on the short term. On the long term, what's happening though is that we are just diluting common knowledge Every individual is just building their own knowledge um, uh, regardless of how others are building their knowledge. And this notion of collective common knowledge is so crucial for trust. Companies in the tech industry um, have a responsibility of allowing the public to know what's common knowledge right now. Imagine, for example, we have had these access to uh, data and points during the election time uh, you would have found out or, or about all these Russian trolling issues during the campaign, not one year after. The only problem, though, is that this data is exclusively uh, held at the hands of engineers and product managers and data scientists at Facebook and YouTube and, and other platforms. The other aspect of transparency, I think it has to do with the internal management of these companies. 
The reason why humans wanted the governments to be more transparent is because governments hold so much power, right? And, and as we decentralize power, we want hold, to hold people accountable. Um, the corporates of today, especially the tech companies, have so much aggregate power on their hands that it is unheard of in human history. And with such power, you have to think about checks and balances. And they have to come... Um, um, you know, self-regulation, industry regulation, and government regulation, and, and also public regulation through proper journalism that exposes the problems, uh, the diseases, and addresses them and offer, like, constructive debates around them. Um, so I, I think, like, right now, when I try and assist, and it's, a, it's an external perception because I have not worked in these companies recently, uh, I just think that they need to do more work um, internal. Uh, more than external on this idea of do they think the public deserve to know? Do they think that it is better for the society as an overall uh, to know? What's the incentive for transparency on behalf of giant like Facebook or Google, who you used to work for, is it pure altruism or is it going to have to come from governments and people? Companies are established under a certain politi uh, political and economic system. Um, co companies get created to create profit. That's their main primary goal. My argument is not like, oh, you need to be nicer to the society so that, um, so that we all love you. Um, it's going to have to be government and it's <laughs> yeah. going to have to be political pressure by people. Yeah, and also um, it could be, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be that path. I think there are millions of paths to any, to any solution. It's just you want to find the least friction one. Um, the least friction one is, um, is these companies realizing that there is a lot of changes that are required within their core DNA um, and that the amount of power they have right now makes uh, the cost of committing a mistake much higher than it used to be 10 years ago, only 10 years ago. Transparency, I think, is, is important. Um, the, the key here is that it's not really about, okay, what is it exactly, what kind of report do they need to send us? I'm not talking about that yet. I think there's a very fundamental level first, um, which is uh, worthy of investigation. Uh, are the individuals who run these companies believe in a well-informed society and believe that with more power comes great responsibility, uh, not in making decisions, only, but also in sharing knowledge and in making sure that there's sort of alignment of interest between them and the society. And for that to happen, much more transparency uh, should exist within the DNA of the companies. Um, and then we can talk about then, yeah, please provide us with bird views that allow us to see what is the talk of the town, what are the links that are distributing, who's distributing what, like give us uh, some health network stats and make it available to people like yourself who can dig deeper and find patterns and warn the society from things or tell the society good news, whatever that is. The diversity that I think we could pay more attention to um, is uh, professional diversity. Um, I wish there are more artists uh, within tech companies. Uh, I wish there are more social scientists within tech companies. Uh, I think uh, just like uh, in product development cycles, there are lawyers who make sure that this product is not violating any 
rules and terms and conditions and laws and legislations. Um, there should be some social science input that provide some feedback to product managers, uh, not after the fact, not after the product was built, uh, but before. It's true that there will always be unintended consequences. There's no way uh, you're going to be able to predict all the consequences, but sometimes um, people pass on very obvious unintended consequences. I wanted to ask you about an idea that you've talked about in the past, which is a mobocratic algorithm. And I'm wondering if you maybe could just explain what that is. Yeah, so in a simplistic way, because the reality is far more complex, the AI that is installed on social media platforms... Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence that's installed on on social media platforms does mainly, uh, uh, it's a technical term, exploit... Um, uh, your attention. Um, exploitation is a term in, in artificial intelligence, which means that when you know something works, you exert, you exhort it, you 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 make full use of it. Um, the other kind is exploration. So, for example, if I know for sure that you like soccer, um, uh, I'm a big fan of Mo Salah and in uh, uh, Liverpool. Uh, if you like soccer, it knows that you like soccer and serve you soccer, 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 soccer. Um, it doesn't know if you like guitars or not. But it's busy serving you soccer um, uh, because if, if they show you a real state of a guitar video and you're not interested in guitar, you might not engage. So engagement numbers will drop. So exploitation at scale is what's happening. Um, and when you build the algorithm around engagement, what gets distribution is not what's factful, truthful, objective. Uh, what's, what gets the distribution is what's emotionally triggering. And you could definitely emotionally trigger people for the right causes, but you could also emotionally trigger them for the wrong cause. You could make people love each other by showing acts of kindness going viral, but you could also show the worst uh, human nature by showing like uh, negative, like someone shaming someone or beating them up or doing something that's awful. And we see this every day. Yeah. And... These algorithms are basically replace the roles of editors. The editorial board is the engineers. Um, uh, these algorithms uh, make editing decisions. Uh, it say this is good content. Show it to thousands, to millions, to hundreds of millions of people. And this is not engaging content. Don't show it to anyone. Um, if you're a content creator, um, and you know if you write very objectively, you are less likely to get attention. Um, what does that do to your psyche? Um, you either, while you're aware, or even subconsciously, start to up your game. Um, and in order to get more attention when you up your game, you probably want to talk to your your camp. You don't want to talk to the other camp. So you are just going to other the other type. You are going to insult them. You're going to shame them. You're going to do something. And the higher the degree of insult, the more likely the active loud, angry voices of your camp will start cheering for you so you think you are on the right path. And put that at scale and you uh, um, you will be able to get mobocracy. And um, uh, mobocracy um, is the rule of the mob. It's like basically when the loudest voices take over. I think democracy without meritocracy is mobocracy. Like if you remove the sanity, 
the logic, the ability to think objectively, uh, the ability to align interest, um, you are going to end up with mob rule. And what does the mob do? Uh, the mob basically turn everything into an emotional uh, um, argument, um, does not able to build mutual understanding, lacks empathy, uh, more busy with themselves than, uh, than, uh, than everyone else. And those mobs interest is to keep the game as uh, a mobocracy game. I'm wondering if we might just sort of look back your experiences in Egypt. At the time, everybody, uh, commentators and people looking at events in Egypt and elsewhere, thought that it can only be a good thing that information is liberated, that social media was going to usher in an area where authoritarianism would not really be possible. I'm wondering if we were all wrong then or whether we are overreacting now that we've seen the rise in some of these authoritarian leaders who manipulate social media. What is your assessment of how the general mood was accurate or inaccurate back then? Yeah, I think it was fairly inaccurate because it was a new phenomena in a way for for at least the, the people who are not in history and philosophy, who have not thought about, who have, you know, not processed how nations change. And I think um, it was naively optimistic, um, but I think for, for a good reason, <laughs> uh, societies change because... Um, old powers, old systems, old structures um, start having cracks on them. They're no longer working as effectively. Uh, they don't meet the ambitions of the elites the system is creating. Um, and elites here is not... Um, I'm using it in a very technical term, not the not the ones who are disconnected. You know, I, I consider myself uh, part of the elite because of um, education. All my friends, and we're just like middle-class Egyptian people. Um, and when systems have these cracks um, and the middle class start pointing out to them, if their inability to solve for them increases over time, eventually the system falls down on its own. And we just came into that moment where the system was so cracked uh, that it could basically fall down. And a lot of that naive optimism was driven based on such a, like, a human aspiration for the best. And I think like a lot of journalists said, there was, there was so much powerful energy, uh, not only in our own hearts we, when we carried to the streets, uh, but also in the outside world. It's, it was very humbling, actually, in many ways. Like it's, it's so daring to the heart to feel that someone living in, in a city or a town in the U.S. is like cheering for um, protesters. Um, you know, thousands of miles away. However, I have to say that this naive optimism did not last for long, but the narrative continued. And that's where, like, I think, like, for example, like, I look back at myself, um, that's where I got this notion that it is very important when reality doesn't meet expectations to really try and understand what was wrong with expectations and not, like, try and reject reality. I guess, like, we were inaccurate back then, but we're also very, uh, um, we're, we're still, like, emotional about it today. Like, again, the disappointment of everything that happened, the um, uh, situation in Egypt is actually, right now, much worse 
than than during Mubarak days, and and I understand that from uh, also like the conditions are different. Like Mubarak was living in a fairly stable environment, and uh, today Sisi is not. It's, the environment is far. Like look at the region around uh, the economic conditions, um, and also like the amount of human rights violations. So tell me, um, thinking about the future. Uh, what do you hope for, if anything, in the world of tech, in our online lives, in our social media lives? The best joy comes from being able to align interests and to build. It's humans are uh, socially connected. They ideally, when they are not driven by fear, uh, they're far more compassionate, far more empathetic. Um, it is just that there is a lot of trauma and uh, um, and and you know like hardships that many of us experience in their lives um, and that dictates a lot of our future behavior and what I'm seeing today in the world is like we're increasing that level of trauma through polarization and sensationalism and populism making people hate each other using fear and shame as tactics to emotionally engage people and my hope is that we reach a level of intellectual humility uh, to stop that because this is not good for anyone. Wail Gonim, more than eight years after the Egyptian revolution in which he played a key role, all because of a Facebook page. That's it for this edition of the BBC Trending Podcast. My thanks to the rest of our team, in particular our audio engineer, Rod Farker. As always, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can even email me. My email is michael.wendling, W-E-N-D-L-I-N-G, at bbc.co.uk. And let me know if it's okay to read out your message on a future podcast episode. There was a tremendous response to our last story about Change of You, a website devoted to sparking positive online conversation. Martin Siegel in Ohio called the idea, quote, refreshing. And we also had a message from Krista Retto. She said, I am posting about it everywhere. Just a couple of the dozens of messages that I received about that particular story. And before we go, I want to tell you about the return of one of my personal favorite podcasts from the last couple of years. Death in Ice Valley is back. But are they any closer to solving the mystery? An unidentified body in a remote Norwegian valley. She was laying with her head down there. Who was she? Fake passports, the wigs, the unprescripted glasses. And what was she doing there? She has an agenda and she doesn't want to talk about it. I'm Marit Higraf. And I'm Neil McCarthy. And in Death in Ice Valley, we tried to find answers to a mystery that has remained unsolved for 48 years. There are somebody living who knows more about this case. Tracking down eyewitnesses and using new forensic technology. Now I'm cutting the tooth. Telling a story set deep in the Cold War with strong hints of espionage. If you take the missile, I will shoot. But it left us with a lingering feeling that someone didn't want the truth to be known. Obviously he was told by some people to keep his mouth shut. We're about to come back with an update, so now's the perfect time to catch up with the whole series. Why all this secrecy? It was like a cover-up. What on earth? 
That's Death in Ice Valley from the BBC World Service and NRK. I think we'll break this case right now. Just search for Death in Ice Valley wherever you get your podcasts.